Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. Last week we left off in our study of the book of Acts with about 120 followers of Jesus Christ gathered together in an upper room and they are ready and they are waiting to receive the Spirit of God. That's where we left off. So for about 10 days here between Christ's ascension and um, the Spirit's coming, There's about 10 days where they are just waiting in this room. They are fearful. They are anxious. They're probably questioning, how in the world is God going to use us, this ragtag, motley crew of people with all sorts of problems and issues and struggles? How is God going to be able to use me to accomplish this mission of advancing the gospel and advancing the message of Jesus Christ to the world? About 120 people in Jerusalem about to take the gospel to the world. Fast forward now 2,000 years later from this scene in Jerusalem. And here we are in Shadron, Nebraska. In Christ, worshiping Him. This is a place that would have been to them the remote parts of the earth. When you think about it. And there's gatherings of believers all around the world doing the same thing that we are. I mean, how, how did that happen? Have you thought about that? How did that happen? How did we go from 120 people in this little room in Jerusalem to now the whole world just about is singing praises to God this morning, praising God for what He has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. I mean, how did we get from there to here, and what empowered that type of growth? Do you guys think it was their uh, their marketing plan? Think it was their social media feeds that they had? You know, they're getting the message out there. You think it was that they were just really smart? They had cunning. They're just really persuasive with their words. They were skilled in the art of rhetoric. Um, Do you think that they just had enough self-esteem that they were able to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and grit their teeth and bear it? And they said, "Let's let's just do this. Let's take this gospel to the world. You think they did it in their own strength that way? I think we're going to see today that it was not by their power at all, but by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit who comes and empowers them just as Jesus promised in Acts 1.8. And that's what we're going to look at today. Some of the works of the Spirit from Acts chapter 2, verses 1-13. through 13. Let's look at the first three verses here. When the day of Pentecost had come... They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. Let's go ahead and stop there. This is what we're looking at first here, the coming of the Spirit. By the way, can I say that if you're trying to write a book to convince people of something, you certainly don't put this kind of stuff in it, right? Okay. Wow. Um, What a unique experience we've got here. When the Spirit comes into the world, it's a new era. It's a new dispensation, a new time period. We could call this the beginning of the dispensation of the Spirit. We often call our, the time period that we're living in the dispensation of grace. It, it's, it would be biblical to call it the dispensation of the Spirit. 
But at least a little background material is needed here for us, and I've got quite a bit of background material. Um, Pentecost, number one, was the fourth uh, annual pilgrimage feast that Jewish men were to attend in Israel. And that's why you're going to see people from all over the world here witnessing these things very, you know, as we, as we further on in our study. But um, Jewish men would come from all over to this feast, and it's sometimes called Shavuot. Have you heard that before? Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Harvest. The word Pentecost itself is just a transliteration of the Greek word that means 50th, because it took place on the 50th day after the free Feast of First Fruits. So you got the Feast of First Fruits, 50 days later, the Feast of Weeks. It's called Weeks because it's seven weeks later, about 49 days. So anyway, on the day after Passover, first fruits, they would take a sheaf or a, or a bundle of wheat or barley, and they would cut it, and they would bring it to the temple as an offering, and they would wave it before the Lord. And I, I kind of find this neat because I would, I, my mom did wheat weaving. Uh, she still does. You can find some of her wheat weavings in my office there. Uh, she makes crosses and windmills and things out of wheat. And I remember going out into the field, and I never liked to do it. But we would go, and we would look for the best wheat in the field to make wheat weavings out of, kind of like this. And, uh, but the, this is what the, the priests would do. They would, they would take some of the best wheat or barley, and they would bring it in to the temple, and they would sort of offer it on the altar. They would wave it before the Lord. They would lift it up and down and back and forth, basically. It's basically acknowledging that God is their provider. He's the, he's the one who provides all of their needs in Israel. And uh, it's just got kind of the same spirit as thanksgiving. And I think we could learn a lot from that, right? To thank God for everything we have that is good. And after this, there was a, a great time of waiting after this offering that would take place until Pentecost. So for seven weeks there, and they called this the counting of the Omer. And more, more recently, it has, they say about 500 years after Christ, this kind of became a mournful state that the, that the, that the Jews would enter into because, because of the fact that a lot of tragedies had happened to the Jewish people during this counting of the Omer, the time in between first fruits and Pentecost. And so right now you'll notice that they'll avoid weddings, they won't cut their hair, they won't, um, they won't go to banquets, they won't go to parties. But it's, it's more mournful today, I think, than it was back then. Back then it was more of an anxious waiting. I can't wait for the, for the Feast of Harvest to get here on Pentecost. But um, just like all the other Jewish festivals, we're going to see um, these festivals were all very symbolic of the work and person of Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ was going to do. And we saw this recently, right, with the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I think that blew some of our minds, how that relates to the Christian life and what Jesus accomplished. It's the same thing here. I would actually recommend you guys picking up a book um, called the, the Feasts of Israel, Seasons of the Messiah. It's by Bruce Scott. And uh, I've really enjoyed this one anyway. So I think you would enjoy it too. There's just so much here, even in, you know, with first fruits and the Feast of Harvest, that it's just really difficult for me to explain it all in such a short time from the pulpit. So I recommend picking that up. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 23, he said this Jesus is the first fruits. Remember that? Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So what Paul is doing here is he's proving that He's proving the resurrection. He's saying that because Christ has risen, you're going to rise too, right? And this is an anthropological truth of inclusion, we might call it. 
every single man in Adam has died. We experience spiritual death. We experience physical death. But when Christ came, he undid all of that. So just as we're included in Adam, we're included in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. All die in Adam, all are going to be raised in Christ. And Christ was the first. He's the first fruits of resurrection. Okay, And as a type of Christ, the first sheaf, remember the bundle, the bundle was a type of Christ. Why? Because it was... It was to be the first and best of the crop. It was the first fruits of the year. They'd take a little bit, and it always had to be the choicest produce, and it had to be right there in Israel where it was taken from. But it was just like all the other Old Testament animals. It had to be the best, and it had to be without blemish to typify Christ's perfect sacrifice. But the time of waiting... Between first fruits and Pentecost, this time of expectant waiting is exactly what we see going on with the disciples and what they're going through. They're in this upper room, they're fearful, they're anxious, they, they can't wait, right, for the Spirit to come. Kind of like the Jews in between first fruits and Pentecost. At Pentecost, then, they would have the great harvest celebration, a party would ensue. And that's a symbolic of the great harvest of souls that's going to begin at Pentecost. There's just loads of wonderful symbolism going on, and I'm having a difficult time trying to explain it. But I hope it's making sense. Christ is the first fruits that was offered. He rose from the dead. There's the counting of the Omer, the 50 days in between. And then Pentecost comes, and there's a harvest of souls. It's a harvest party. Okay, does that make sense? Look at all of that symbolism there. Believers in the church age are also considered first fruits in the Bible, meaning that to God, we are his choicest produce. We're his designated choice and special harvest. You ever thought of yourselves that way, as a bundle of wheat? The first fruits? Why the first fruits? Because, well, we're the first to believe in Jesus Christ. We are going to experience either a physical resurrection or rapture first. We're the first fruits. There's also going to be, during the tribulation period, another group of first fruits. You guys know who that is? 144,000 Jews. So if there's a first fruits for this age, there's a first fruits for that as well. It tells you God's doing something new during the tribulation period, right? And to be honest, I wanted to do a whole devotional on how we're supposed to give the first fruits of our lives. Um, I just never got around to it. It was, a, it was a crazy week. It was a fun week, but it was kind of crazy. But think about this, uh, this Old Testament concept of first fruits. We want to give from our lives the first fruits, right? We tithe off the top, that sort of thing. We give him our best. We don't want to give him our leftovers, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to give him our best. I mean, that should be our desire. I mean, we don't always have the time necessary to do our best for the Lord, but we, that should be our desire, to give him our best, not the leftovers. I ran across a satire joke last night, and it's a, a joke about a conversation, a kind of a text, and there's a person saying, you know, people treat me like a god, and the person responds back, How? Well, they ignore my existence unless they need something from me. That's not how we want to treat God. He's not the vending machine we go to only when we need something. We want to give him our best no matter what. I guess regardless of, of what's going on in our lives. We want to give him the best. Anyway, in Bruce Scott's book, this Feasts of Israel book, I found it interesting he mentioned how in fear of losing the significance of this harvest festival and to keep the, some of the Jewish men from coming, I mean, it was a long journey for some of them, they tried to connect the feast of the harvest with the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying that they both took place at the same time. You know, so um, basically the, the law came 50 days after the Exodus. Make sense? 
it was about the same time of year, and so they they tried to um, sort of commemorate the two. And if it's true, then the symbolism I think is even further amazing that God would give the Spirit at the same time the law was given years earlier to contrast the law. The law was external restraint on sin, but the Spirit ushers in a new era, and the power to live righteously is internal. It's by the Spirit of God. So you see a contrast here between when the law was given and when the Spirit is given. There's a new work here. And by the Spirit, we have power over the flesh. It's sin nature, right? Another interesting note, in Jewish tradition, and this might be Jewish speculation, but it was also claimed, and this is not necessarily biblical, but it was claimed that when God gave the Torah on Mount Sinai to Moses, he did it in 70 major languages. This is a Jewish tradition. And so if that was in their mind when these disciples started to speak in other languages that we're going to see here, it would have naturally caught the attention of the Jews. I mean, it would be very powerful for them uh, to think about what is going on here, what all of these things mean. So after thinking it over, I think most of the Jews had un- undoubtedly understood the symbolic meaning of everything that was going on that day. This was just the first fruit of a much greater response to the gospel around the world. Now let's start to look at some of these supernatural phenomenon here, some of the symbols that accompanied the Spirit's coming. One of the symbols uh, is noise. These, these symbols are here to help us understand what's going on, what is taking place this day. Right? One symbol is noise. Notice that. It's not wind. It's noise. Like a wind. I, I was reading commentary after commentary thinking, this is not a wind, it's a noise. It sounds like the wind. Right? What does a tornado sound like? A freight train? It's just like a violent, rushing wind. I mean, it was a really powerful sound. And it drew people's attention to where the disciples were at. I don't think the curtains were blowing. I think it was a noise of wind. Jesus told Nicodemus that new spiritual birth by the Spirit is like the wind. You can't see it, but it's going on. It's happening. And so the sound of wind is symbolic of God's Spirit coming into the world. That's what that tells you. The Greek word Pneuma can be used apparently for the word spirit and wind and breath. Spirit, wind, and breath all come from this basically the same word. And it's the context that tells you what it is. But I think Genesis 2.7 gives us sort of the foundational picture of what is going on here. God, remember, what did God do when he created Adam from the clay, from the dust of the ground? It got really awkward. <laughs> he like... It says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He got really personal. It wasn't this this image, you know, that Michelangelo painted on the walls of the Sistine Chapel, or whatever it was, you know, where God barely touches man's finger and life comes into him. No, God got really personal up in Adam's face and breathed into him the breath of life. Well, I think that gives you a picture of what's going on here. There's new breath that's coming into them, new wind, new spirit. Adam sinned. Adam was, was, had, had life from God. He had, he had Zoe life, eternal life. The, the life of God in him, right? The spirit of God in him. He sins. There's a spiritual death. And now what? Man's got to be born again. Well, here we are at Pentecost. And the new spiritual life that God intended is being breathed back into those who have trusted in Christ. It's kind of like John 20. You remember, we were just looking at this in our men's fellowship group. John 20, how awkward it is kind of when Jesus breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Well, we know they didn't receive the Holy Spirit in a baptismal sense, like because that waits until today, till Acts chapter 2. But apparently, just like in the Old Testament, they were filled with the Spirit 
to understand the things that Jesus were te- was teaching. There's a filling of the Spirit there. So, anyway, this new birth, it's invisible. It's, it's like the wind, and it's, it's God who is life. Man has to have God in him to have life. But that's work of the Spirit, number one, we see going on here, is that the Spirit baptizes believers into Christ. And this is what's causing them to be born again, to be regenerated, the Bible calls it. Acts 2 only says that they were filled in verse 4. But remember, the expectation was that they would be actually baptized by the Spirit. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 5. John baptized with water. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire not many days from now. So again, all in Adam die. In Christ, we're born again by the Spirit through Spirit baptism. Baptism by the Spirit. We've talked about this just about every time we have a water baptism so we don't get the two confused. Water baptism signifies or portrays spirit baptism. We put our faith in Christ. That means we die with Christ. We're raised again to new life with Christ. That's what water baptism symbolizes, but that's what's happening when we put our faith in Christ. We're baptized by the Spirit into the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's both a theological truth, and that's a that's a that's an experiential reality. We have new life in Christ. We have a new experience. Why? Because before we put our faith in Christ, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. Absolutely dead. All we were is operating in the flesh. Sin was our master. We were subject to Satan. Now we have the Spirit in us, and we can choose whether or not we're going to walk according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. So, again, this Spirit baptism is something that only happens once, and it's the moment you trust Christ. And it's permanent. The church is made up of everyone who has placed their faith in Christ, everyone who has been baptized by the Spirit, regardless of water baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Which body is that? Christ's. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of how many spirits? Just one. It's the Spirit that baptizes us, and all who are baptized by the Spirit make up the church. And I'm not saying either that you have to have some sort of great experience. This is just truth. I mean, in the moment, you don't have to have some big experience like they're having, right? The moment you believe, you might not, you might not even know that this happened to you. And actually, most people don't until they go back later and they read what happened to them. They read something like the clear doctrine in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. It says, the moment we believe in Christ, the moment we, we heard the message of our salvation and we believed, it says at that moment, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is like our deposit on eternity. Pretty good stuff. It's even greater when you think about how the Old, Old Testament, how the, how the Spirit of God actually worked in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, he was actually pretty economical, <laughs> we could say. I mean, he came and went upon men as God saw fit, as God willed it for certain purposes, kind of like Samson. Um, we could say God used the Spirit in the Old Testament reservedly. And it's important to call the Spirit a hymn, by the way, a hymn, because he is a person, he's a member of the Trinity. He's not just a force, but... Anyway, it's not the same way today. The Spirit of God has come, and when someone believes today, He comes to indwell them forever. Think about this. You are never alone ever again. You always have the Spirit with you and in you from the moment you believe. You will never take one single step in your life alone. In your life or for the rest of eternity always with you, 
always in, in you whether you want him to be there or not. And sometimes you might not want him to be because we, we like our sin, right? But he's there and he's going to get after us. <laughs> Just like your mom and dad used to do, right? Um, we know he's there because he chastises us. He, the Lord chastises every son of his. Anyway, the spirit can be quenched. He can be grieved by disobedience, but he can never, ever be extinguished in us. He never leaves us. And he never forsakes us. My second uh, work of the Spirit principle, whatever you want to call it, is called the Spirit's indwelling presence brings a new way of life. The second symbol is tongues as of fire. I wouldn't say it was actually fire. It says as of fire. It resembled both a tongue, but it was this probably some invisible object that looks like fire. Uh, not totally invisible, but transparent is what I mean. So let your imagination play around with that one, huh? The tongues that were as a fire seem to signify God's presence. His presence. You think back to the Old Testament, there are many occasions where God's presence is associated with fire. Think about Moses and his interaction with the burning bush in the wilderness when he says, go get my people out of Egypt. You think of... When he received the law on Mount Sinai, it was a consuming fire up on top of that mountain. You think about uh, the pillar of fire in the wilderness. Read the book of Numbers. That is a fabulous book. God guides the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years at night by a pillar of fire during the day, a pillar of cloud. Pretty awesome stuff. And then you think about maybe Genesis 15. Abraham, the covenant with Abraham, God uh, moves through the sacrifices and it's, he's described as a blazing torch. And those are just a few examples. The fiery presence reminds us of God's supernatural guiding covenant presence with man and with his people. And through the indwelling spirit, God is the one who's giving his disciples this new life and new power, new convictions, new insights into the Word of God. How many of you tried to read the Bible before you were saved? How'd that work out for you? It's awful. But then the Spirit of God, then you believe, and the Spirit of God illuminates you. He, he, he gives you understanding into the Word of God. It's like, bing, the lights finally come on, Right? And that, that happens every now and then with us, right? The Spirit gives us new insights into a text that we've read ten times, but we finally get it now because we're finally ready for it. But new insights into the Word of God. He gives us spiritual gifts. Each of us has at least one spiritual gift. He, he gives us new guidance. And you, you, when you go through the book of Acts, uh, look at where they're looking for guidance on where to take the gospel. Where do they look in? They're praying, and the Spirit of God is revealing to them where they should take the gospel. They're not casting lots anymore like we saw last week. That's the big contrast. Before the Spirit comes, they're rolling dice to figure out God's will. After the Spirit comes, they're proclaiming God's will, and the Spirit is the one leading and guiding them. It's pretty fantastic stuff. Secondly, let's look at the results of the Spirit's coming in verses 4 through 11. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with different tongues as the Spirit was giving them the ability to speak out. Now there were Jews residing in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. A little hyperbolic there, but from a lot of the known ancient world, all the points of the compass. And when this sound, did you see that? It's not called the wind, it's called the sound. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, why, are not all these people who are speaking Galileans? Right, those, those, those hicks from northern Israel? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born. Parthians, Medes, 
Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the mighty deeds of God or the mighty wonders of God. What a passage, huh? I think the text suggests that all of the disciples this day, not just the 11, but I think all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit in the same way on this unique day, and that was approximately 120 of them. But that's work of the Spirit number three. The Spirit fills the believers. We've talked about baptism, now we're talking about the filling of the Spirit. He baptized them, and then they, he was filled. They were filled by the Spirit in verse 4. The Spirit's filling, unlike Spirit baptism, that's something that can be reoccurring. I mean, I can be uh, emptied and filled of the Spirit several times in a single day. The New Testament actually commands us to be filled with the Spirit. And how do I know I'm not filled with the Spirit? Well, as soon as I know I'm not, (laughs) what one man said, if something's coming out of my mouth or something's in my mind that I'm contemplating on that's definitely not from God, I know I'm not walking in the Spirit. I know when I blow up and have some angry temper tantrum or something like that, I know at that moment I am not walking in the Spirit. How do we know we're walking in the Spirit? What are the fruit of the Spirit? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all these good fruits, right? That's how you know when you're walking in the Spirit. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit, making melody in your hearts. You're just kind of you're caught up in who God is. You're praising God. You've got a worshipful spirit. Spirit-filled people are, are people who are yielded to God and His Word, and they aren't quenching the Spirit, they aren't grieving the Spirit. Someone asked D.L. Moody once, you know, sir, why do I need to be filled with the Spirit over and over again? And D.L. Moody said, sir, because you leak. (laughs) When someone's filled with the Spirit, exactly what the world needs. They need spirit-filled Christians. And I think you find a common pattern with what went on this day. Um, He's going to use our tongues to speak the wonders of God in Christ. Did you catch that? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'll see in verse 11, they began to proclaim the wonders of God to people. So I think when we're filled with the Spirit, we're just, we're going to overflow. We're going to want to talk about our faith. We're going to want to talk about Jesus We can't help it because he's so good to us. Notice that in uh, this verse 4 as well, it was the Spirit giving them the ability to speak out. When Jesus said they would advance the gospel, they would, but not in their own strength, and that is very apparent here. Nothing would happen if they tried to do it in their own strength. The Spirit had to come, and he had to bless their efforts as they depended on him. And that's work of the Spirit number four. The Spirit of God empowers believers to do the will of God. It's God who supplies the means to carry out the mission, to advance the gospel for them and for us. We're not going to do this thing on our own. We can't even we can't live the Christian life on our own. We can't we can't do any ministry on our own if we are depending on ourselves. It's only by God's grace that we enter this race that we call the Christian life, and it's only by grace that we run the race. You can't make disciples in your own strength. You've got to depend on God's grace. But just like the Old Testament prophet Zechariah told Zerubbabel, it's not by man's might, remember this verse, not by might nor by man's power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. And they're just rebuilding the temple structure, basically, in that book. And God's saying, look, you can't even build your church building without my spirit. Isn't that awesome? 
Not by might, not by power, man's power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. Notice how the spirit initially affected their language, though. This is a big deal because it tells us what the spirit and God's mission is primarily about. It's about sharing the truth with people, about making him known among the nations. That's what the Spirit of God gave these Galilean men the ability to do, to speak in new languages, to share the wonders of God with people. This is not an uninterpretable ecstatic language here. It's not this one language. Look at this. It's heteros, other languages, dialectos. It's where we get our word dialect from, and it's plural. Multiple languages here. So there's several different real languages being spoken, even dialects of languages. You know, I learned that dialects can be so different. I mean, if you can study Spanish in the States, but then you go to Chile in South America and you won't understand a thing. It is not the same Spanish. The Spanish in Chile is not even the same Spanish in Argentina. I saw Argentinians and Chileans looking at each other like, what are you talking about? They both speak Spanish, but they can't understand each other because they have different dialects. It's a different dialect in Mexico as well and in Spain. And uh, it's really funny. All the Chileans would actually make fun of Mexicans because they talk so slow. You guys think Mexicans talk slow? No, they sound really fast. Well, go to Chile and try to learn Chilean Spanish. It's muy rápido. It's very quick. It's a really, it's unbelievable. That's why it was so difficult. I spent so long I mean, I was in language school. I studied for years. I, took, I had Duolingo apps on my phone. I had, you know, I had the books. I'm still horrible at it. Still horrible at speaking Spanish. I mean, and look what God does here. This is why this is so amazing, because he basically undoes the Tower of Babel right here, miraculously. You can't believe in Acts chapter 2 and not believe in the Tower of Babel. God miraculously, instantaneously confused the languages at the Tower of Babel and he undoes them here for a moment, just like that. Isn't that awesome? Changed their languages just in the snap of a finger, basically. It was the, the context of Acts is actually what gives us the clearest um, understanding of what the gift of tongues is. It's the supernatural ability to speak an unlearned language to advance the gospel to all nations. It's the context of the book of Acts that tells us what it is. This is what gets the church off the ground really quickly during this apostolic period. It's, it's evidence of God's blessing on the church and his blessing on the Gentiles. It's neat to think, though, that this is like a reversal of the Tower of Babel right here and there. But um, I'm one of the guys that, and I don't know if anybody here thinks differently, but I don't see any real reason to think that the tongues that are being spoken of here are different than the tongues that are in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and, and that are taking place in Corinth. Uh, I think when, you, when you, you study Acts 2... Here, I'll tell you what I did one time. And this was at the advice of someone else. I, uh, I went through Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 because I was really confused about what was going on here. And I just wrote down every observation I could about tongues, about the gift of tongues. Did the study on my own and just went through Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I went through it a couple times just writing down observations and I came to the conclusion Oh, these are just the same thing. These are real languages that are being spoken. It's a revelatory gift that was destined, destined to cease along with the other revelatory gifts like prophecy and knowledge. I mean, the early church didn't have a completed New Testament Bible. And so they had these gifts that gave them fresh revelation from God to be able to speak forth the word of God. So... Anyway, before Scripture, in the early church stages, these gifts 
were really necessary. And the reason that they would need an interpreter, can anybody think of a reason they would need an interpreter in Corinth? Well, because they're all Corinthians, right? They don't have Parthians there and Medes, but there's people in the Corinthians church who are speaking Parthian. And it's like, look, don't get up and talk in Parthian if there's no interpreter for us. You know, so anyway, I hope you understand what I mean. Uh, it wasn't good that no one could be edified by this. He said, it's not good for you to... to uh, someone that was speaking in tongues was basically edifying themselves. And what's the purpose of a spiritual gift? To edify others, to edify the church. So I, I think it was being misused. But anyway... Let's move on. Since the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, uh, hundreds of years earlier, uh, about 700 B.C., 586 B.C., somewhere in there, uh, some of the Jews, remember, like the northern Israel was taken to Assyria, southern Israelites, Judeans, they were taken to Babylon, right? Well, hundreds of years have gone by, and not everybody moved back. So there was still Jews from these um, dis dispersions, I guess. You'd call it dispersions. I mean, they were dispersed all over the ancient world at this point. I mean, there were actually Jewish towns around the world. Just like today, we have Jewish precincts in some of our cities, right? And they all have these communities. It was the same thing back in the day. Well... These Jews who had been dispersed all over the ancient world would come back for the annual pilgrimage feasts like Pentecost. And uh, there was people there from, you, you read about it, right? I mean, people from Iran to Rome to northern Africa. Well, they're, they're all here along with some Jewish converts, uh, maybe weren't Jewish, but they call them proselytes from Rome. Well, they're all here, and they start to hear the disciples speaking their language, their home, what would now be their home language. And I can relate to that. When I was in South America, is if I heard someone speak in English, oh, you know, I wanted to go talk to them. I wanted to go see what that was about, see where they're from. Partly because my mind hurt from being <laughs> in the in Spanish all the time. You just have to think it so much. It, I've never had my, my brain fry so much as when I was in a different culture like that. But they are hearing their native tongues, and so a crowd starts to gather. I imagine that they're kind of working their way out of the upper room. They're doing what Jesus told them to do. He said, go and make disciples once this power has come upon you. And so they're leaving the upper room, and, and people are gathering around. Maybe they're near the temple area. And uh, they hear these Galileans talk in their language. And uh, I think that's, that's kind of neat because they were considered the Hicks or the country bumpkins compared to the Judeans in the south. Um, and um, it gives us another great principle. Uh, work of the Spirit number five. God works to bless all nations. All nations. Oh, there's a map for you. I missed that. But like Cyrene, Libya, Parthia, I mean, people from all over here. There were Jews clear up north of the Black Sea. But work of the Spirit number five, he desires to bless all nations. And this event confirms that. It confirms that the gospel is going to go out to the nations, that God has his blessing on the Gentiles. Why? Because it's, it's the Gentile languages that they are speaking here, even though... It's mostly Jews that are present. And remember, that would have been really weird for them. That was new to them because they thought, well, it's the Jews that are blessed. Well, now the, the Holy Spirit's come and he's speaking Gentile languages. And um, it's kind of neat, but on Pentecost, they say that they would, the priest would have to um, offer two loaves, basically. Uh, they would have two loaves of bread, and they, they were leavened, right? Sinful bread. So you've got, at, at, at the first fruits, they're offering grain in the fire. And if it dies, it bears much fruit, right? That Jesus, I don't know, I don't think we get all the symbolism that he talked about 
and it's hard for me to explain. But now, here we are 50 days later, and you've got raised bread, right? Loaves of bread, and there's two of them, and they're offered at once. And a lot of people think this is symbolic of Jew and Gentile in the church, the barrier wall being broken down, being offered at once to God, and they're both really sinful, (laughs) right? They both have leaven. So some more cool symbolism there. But Luke says Jews from every nation under heaven were there. That might be a bit hyperbolic, but this is exactly how the church takes off muy rapidamente, very quickly. Right? These, these individuals who were at Passover and Pentecost, they'd come for Passover, they've come for Pentecost, and they're seeing all of this. They're seeing what's going on, they've heard it, and now they're going to go home. And this was designed by God for this to happen. They're going to go home, they're going to go home to Libya, they're going to go home to Cyrene, they're going to go home to Crete, they're going to go home to Iran, wherever they're from, and churches, before the apostles even go out, are going to start to pop up. And we noted this when we went through the book of Titus because Paul is sending Titus to Crete, to all these churches that have started on the island of Crete. Well, no apostles ever been there. How did it happen? It's the Jews who were at Pentecost and Passover that went home, and it just happened. And now Paul is sending men like Titus to go and organize these churches and get them grounded in apostolic teaching. And uh, the Jews that remain in Jerusalem, they're going to give themselves to apostolic teaching until persecution arises, and then they're going to be scattered. But let's look at third and lastly, the reaction to the Spirit's coming. you think it'd be all positive, right? Nope, verse 11 through 13. We hear them in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty wonders of God, and they all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were jeering and saying they're full of sweet wine. <laughs> I would too if I saw that many people speak in other languages. Sometimes it looks really weird. It looks like someone's drunk and they're speaking another language, right? But uh, this, in this unique event, they're all filled. They begin to testify about Jesus. And I think that should be the emphasis. That is the emphasis, right? Jesus says you're going to be witnesses. That's the main thing here. Being witnesses, the tongues and the wind and the fire and the miracles are not the emphasis. The emphasis is is on being a witness for Jesus. If someone is filled with the Spirit, they're going to testify about Jesus. That's my uh, last work of the Spirit for today. He enables believers to speak the wonders of God. As believers, that's what we do. We talk about how we share our story, how He has restored us how he has saved us, how he's brought healing to our lives, how he's healed some of our relationships, how we've found life in him and satisfaction and purpose. We've found joy and hope and peace. We've found self-control. The world needs to hear that witness. It needs to hear the wonders of what he can do in a life and for a life. But at the same time, we shouldn't expect everyone to initially believe it, right? Some thought that the disciples were drunk. (laughs) I think it's kind of funny. Uh, Some people mocked it, even though they saw the miracles. This is important for us to grasp, because this is reality. The Spirit doesn't guarantee outcomes. He empowers us, but He does not guarantee outcomes. Not everyone is going to be willing to accept Jesus Christ, even when they are convicted by the Holy Spirit to do so. Soon, in the book of Acts, you're going to see Jewish leaders resist the Holy Spirit, plug their ears to the preaching of Stephen. They don't want to hear it anymore, and they're going to run at him, and they're going to stone him to death. It is possible to resist the Holy Spirit. He becomes the first martyr in the book of Acts. And, you know, when we share the good news with unbelievers, I think it's important for us to understand what's going on. You need to understand man. Biblical anthropology of man. Understand that without the Spirit of God doing His convicting work, we have 
zero hope of restoring them to God as ministers of reconciliation. It's the Spirit of God who has to convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment. Their sin, their need of righteousness, righteousness, and the judgment to come if they don't. And so when we go to share the gospel, we, we go into it with that understanding that we must depend on the Word of God and the Spirit of God to do a work in their hearts. We cannot make anyone believe. And once they hear the truth, we cannot make them accept it. I mean, they can even resist the Holy Spirit. So we, we share, we're dependent on Him, we're trusting Him and His ways, right? We're depending on the Spirit. In closing, I want to say that since the beginning... Satan has been trying to get us, every single person, to operate independently of God. He says, you're better off without God, right? If you obey God, oh, he'll make your life miserable. That's what he told Adam and Eve. But that's not the way we were created. We were created for a dependent relationship with God and with his spirit in us. We weren't made to live without God in us. When we don't have God in us, we try to find other gods to replace that void that's there. The good news is that Jesus has paid for our sins, and he has made his indwelling presence available to us again. Something that was lost in Eden is now regained right here in Acts chapter 2. That's pretty awesome stuff. He kept his promise in Genesis 3.15. We depend on him for salvation saying, I cannot pay for my own sins. I can never be good enough. I'm depending on Christ and His work. And then from that moment, we continue to live the Christian life dependent on Him. In every moment, we, we're called to live with a prayerful, conscious mindset that we cannot and will not do Christian life or ministry on our own. Please understand this. We can do zero not a zip, nothing without God. I think this is one of the keys to being filled by the Spirit, is just to admit we are empty. You cannot be filled unless you admit that you are empty. That's a key point there. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. And it's, it's important that we be filled because world needs it. It's a really dark world out there and it needs believers like you and me filled with the Spirit and dependent on the Spirit who cannot keep the message and the works of God to themselves. <laughs>